The Blackfeet Confederacy is made up of four bands. The Northern Pagan, the Southern Pagan, the Blood, and the Siksika. Per their tribal website, blackfeetnation.com, most Blackfeet currently living in the United States descend from the South Pagan who, during Bridger's time, Trapping Beaver, would have called themselves Nitsitapi, the people. Of course, the mountain men had other names for them. Some I won't mention here, but one of the most popular was Bugs Boys, the Sons of Satan. Needless to say, there was no love lost between the American trappers and the Blackfeet, their beef going all the way back to the Lewis and Clark expedition. I wrote about this recently in my 100% free newsletter, wildwestjosh.substack.com, if you're interested, link in the show notes. But on the return trip from the Pacific, the Corps of Discovery separated and Captain Lewis's group had a confrontation with the Blackfeet, just south of the Marias River on what's now the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. Long story short, two Blackfeet warriors were killed, and from that point forward, it seemed like it was open season on American fur trappers. Weren't long before the Mountaineers started feeling the same way about the Blackfeet, and violence became a given any time the two groups would meet. Mercy was rarely extended by either side. That said, the idea that these hostilities were solely based on bad feelings from the Lewis and Clark expedition is an oversimplification. The Blackfeet had grown used to trading with the Hudson's Bay Company for goods and supplies, especially firearms with which they could defend themselves against their many enemies who also had firearms. And their currency to purchase these guns was beaver. As the trappers began encroaching on their territory, the beaver population was decimated. Many areas were plumb trapped out by the 1840s, and if you'll recall from the last episode, Hudson's Bay was attempting to create a beaver desert. The Blackfeet, as formidable and mighty as they were, weren't just fighting the fur trappers for the sake of meanness. They were protecting a very valuable asset, the beaver, a currency that allowed them to secure arms to protect their loved ones. Also, this was their land, and the fact of the matter was these fur trappers were not invited. Just something to keep in mind. I know when discussing the mountain men, it's very easy to see the Blackfeet as these super violent assholes hell-bent on mayhem and death. I mean, that is how the fur trappers viewed them. But you gotta figure the Blackfeet felt the same way about them. And that's not even taking into account the various epidemics that these mountaineers unknowingly introduced to the Blackfeet. Diseases that would absolutely crush them in the years to come. Two sides to every story. I just felt like it was worth pointing out. And with that, let's go ahead and kick it off. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Last episode, we left off with William Sublett leading a brigade into Blackfeet country, piloted by none other than our very own Jim Bridger. Now, this pilot job wasn't so much to trailblaze a path or guide the other trappers as it was a walking point type situation, or riding point, I should say. They saw Bridger roaming miles ahead of the main party alone, specifically looking for any signs of ambush or attack. The men trapped their way up to Pierre's Hole, present-day eastern Idaho, before moving into the Big Titties, a.k.a. the Grand Teton Mountains. And yes, those peaks were named by French trappers because they reminded them of big old tatas. I mean, what do you want me to say? I, I get it. Long nights up there in the high lonesome. The men of the brigade pushed through the Teton Pass and into Jackson's Hole. And there's probably a joke there, but I'm not going to make it. And from there, onto Yellowstone Lake, where they were awed by the same wanders that modern-day tourists enjoy when visiting Yellowstone. The geysers and colored mud boiling up from the earth, and 
what the trappers called sulfurious flames. The mountaineers spent the winter in this vicinity, always on guard, of course, and trapped the waterways between Yellowstone and the headwaters of the Missouri up near present-day Bozeman, Montana. Now let's pause here real quick for a disclaimer. Parts of this episode may get a little tedious. You're going to hear a lot of the trappers went to such and such place and trapped on such and such rivers, and then the rendezvous was held at such and such, punctuated by sporadic attacks by the Blackfeet. I thought about just summing it all up very quickly, but I decided to go ahead and give a full account of Bridger's time as a fur trapper. It may seem repetitive, but I think it highlights once again that these were working men out there primarily to do a job. You can't tell Bridger's story without telling the story of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Now with that in mind, let's head on to the rendezvous of 1827, held at Bear Lake in present-day Utah. The Shoshone came to join in on the festivities, but the Blackfeet decided to crash the party, attacking and killing a Shoshone man and his wife. In retaliation, Sublet led a joint force of trappers and snakes against the Blackfeet, killing six of them. And on and on it went. The next season would be just a repeat, with the Blackfeet and the Trappers killing each other any time the opportunity arose. And once more, the Blackfeet attacked the mountain men as they were beginning to assemble for the 1828 rendezvous, held again at Bear Lake. As goes the history of the Old West and much of the history of mankind, violence begets violence begets violence. Many a fur trapper held onto a simmering rage towards the Bugs Boys as they sought to avenge their fallen pals. Likewise, the Blackfeet took mountain men's scalps while exacting their own vengeance in honor of fallen sons and brothers and fathers. Subsequently, at least 10 trappers, probably more, would be slaughtered during the winter of 27 and 28. No idea how many Blackfeet would fall. Following that year's rendezvous, Bridger piloted a brigade into Crow Country. So a little change of pace, trapping along the Powder and Tongue Rivers and wintering with the Crow on the Wind River where, ding, 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 you guessed it, the 1829 rendezvous would be held. A place called Popo Aggie, just north of Lander, Wyoming. The first rendezvous, in fact, held east of the Continental Divide, and interestingly enough, the first of two rendezvous held that summer, with the second taking place a few weeks later at Pierre's Hole. Now, I'm not sure if Jim Bridger attended both of these gatherings. Uh, matter of fact, I can't say for sure what he was up to that following trapping season either. He may or may not have piloted for Jed Smith that fall up to the Snake and Yellowstone Rivers, before setting traps on the Muscle Shell and Judith. The 1830 rendezvous on the Wind River saw wagons being used to carry supplies to the trappers for the first time, as opposed to the usual string of pack mules. This would also be the first time any sort of wheeled vehicles at all had crossed the Continental Divide. This attests to the growing beaver market as more and more fur trappers were bringing in more and more pelts just to keep up with the demand. This rendezvous also saw Jim Bridger, now 26 years of age, finally become a partner in the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. Jed Smith, Sublet, and Davy Jackson sold their interest in the company to Bridger, Tom Fitzpatrick, William Sublet's younger brother, Milton, a German named Henry Fraub, often referred to as Frapp, and the French-Canadian Jean-Baptiste Gervais, a.k.a. Jervy. Jim was now a bourgeois, her boss, an eight-year veteran of the mountains with a proven track record. He knew the land, he knew the indigenous, he knew how to talk to them, when to talk and when to fight. He knew Prime Beaver, how to find it, and he knew how to lead men. Still couldn't read or write, though. Uh, he would never acquire those skills. But he more than made up for that shortcoming with guts, hard work, and a whole hell of a lot of mountain sense. This is also the same time that the American Fur Company, owned by John Jacob Astor, ventured into the Rockies. 
Inevitably, they and the Rocky Mountain Fur Boys came into direct competition. And as it was with the Hudson's Bay Company, things weren't always friendly between the opposing factions. In the fall of 1830, Bridger, Fitzpatrick, and Milt Sublet led a brigade of 80 men once again into Blackfeet country, trapping in the Three Forks region before wintering on the Yellowstone River. Come springtime, Jim would lead the men to the Tongue, where they had 57 horses stolen by the crow. And of course, they tracked them on foot and got their damn horses back. From the Tongue, they rode to the Powder, and from there to the head of Laramie's Fork, trapping beaver the whole daggum way. The 1831 rendezvous was again on Bear River, as tons of company trappers, free trappers, and various Native American tribes showed up, looking to trade and celebrate. But this would not be the case. Uh, Tom Fitzpatrick, now that he was part owner of the company, was tasked with heading to St. Louis and securing supplies. He was to meet there with Jedediah Smith, finalize everything, and then return west in time for the summer gathering. Unfortunately, Fitzpatrick was about two months late getting to St. Louis. And having not heard from him, Jed Smith made an alternate plan to deliver these goods via wagon train to Taos and then Santa Fe. Ended up being a pretty big ordeal that saw the fur trappers and the Rockies left empty-handed. Mountain man Joseph Meek described the situation, saying that those attending the rendezvous had, quote, exhausted the stock of goods on hand. The camp was without blankets and without ammunition. Knives were not to be had, traps were scarce, but worse than all that, the tobacco had given out and alcohol was not. In such a case as this, what was a mountain man to do? End quote. After waiting around for a few more weeks with still no sign of Fitzpatrick, the trappers left for their fall hunt desperately undersupplied. Meanwhile, Fitzpatrick rushed to catch up with Smith. His new plan was to go ahead and continue on to Taos with Jedediah and then rush north and start dispensing supplies to the boys. Sadly, though, it was on this trip that the great Jedediah Smith lost his life. In present-day Grant County, Kansas, not far from where the town of Ulysses now stands, Smith was scouting ahead of the wagon train when he ran into a Comanche war party. Family tradition states that Jed attempted to parley with the warriors to no avail. They opened up fire as he fought back, allegedly killing one of the chiefs, but it just wasn't no use. He was caught out in the open and was just plumb outnumbered. This was towards the end of May, and when the caravan reached Santa Fe over a month later, they found Jed's rifle, pistols, and other belongings already there, in the possession of some Comancheros who traded for them with the same warriors who did Jed in. By the way, I don't really discuss it much in this series, but a lot of people did refer to Jim Bridger as Old Gabe, and this was a nickname given to him by Jedediah Smith. I guess Jim reminded Jed of the Angel Gabriel. Ultimately, Fitzpatrick and Bridger would not be reunited until that winter. Not only did Fitzpatrick come with the much-needed supplies that he doled out to the men right there in the field, but he also had a new recruit, a short, scrappy young man that had come with him out of New Mexico by the name of Kit Carson. That winter of 1831-32, and 32, Bridger and his men stayed with the Nez Perce and the Salish people before setting out to trap on Henry's Fork of the Snake. And they weren't alone. A brigade of men from Astor's American Fur were close on their back trail, looking to poach their beaver. I hate it when that happens. You know, in the same way that an angler doesn't want anybody knowing his special little fishing holes, Bridger was determined not to let these American Fur assholes know where the prime beaver country was. He even tried reasoning with them, offering to split up the mountains, but the American Fur bourgeois, guy named Vanderberg, refused. We'll discuss this guy later, but he and his American Fur brigade followed Bridger and his boys all the way to the 1832 rendezvous, whose location they weren't even supposed to know about. 
This irritation aside, the 1832 summer gathering was huge. This was peak beaver, and over a thousand Native Americans and 400 fur trappers came together at Pierre's Hole. And that didn't sound right, did it? Uh, everybody was having one hell of a good time, until the damn Grovant showed up and crashed the party. Or did they? Looks like what happens next is more the fault of the trappers than anything else. The Grovant, cousins of the Arapaho and not to be mistaken by the Hidasta, people who were also known by the same name, were sometimes friends and sometimes enemies of the Blackfeet. And judging by the fact that they brought their women and kids to the rendezvous, I highly doubt they came to pick a fight. Sadly, they were mistaken as Blackfeet, and during a parlay, some of the mountain men opened up fire, kicking off what's now referred to as the Battle of Pierre's Hole. Estimates vary, but there was somewhere between 150 and 300 Grovant versus several hundred fur trappers and their Salish and Nez Perce allies. Due to some initial hesitation, the Grovant were able to toss up a quick ford of sorts from fallen timber, and by the time the trappers and their friends were ready to attack, their quarry was pert well dug in. Nevertheless, the fight continued until a rumor spread among the trappers that maybe this was a ruse to open up the main rendezvous camp to attack from the Blackfeet. Which I don't know about you, but kind of sounds to me like they'd already been sipping at that whiskey. Fearing for their supplies and families, they rushed back to camp, allowing the Grovant to slip away. When everything was said and done, somewhere around 26 Grovant men, women, and children were dead, along with a dozen trappers. No word on Nez Perce or Salish casualties. By the way, the trappers would return later on, and using their knives, they'd dig all that valuable lead out of the bullet-ridden trees. As the summer came to an end, Bridger once again led a brigade of men toward Blackfeet country. And once again, Vanderberg and them American fur bastards followed. Gosh! Bridger tried a few tricks to shake them, leaving the campfires lit and seeing the men snuck away, or even splitting up and walking in streams to hide their tracks. But nothing worked. American fur was just dogging them every step of the way. Short of violence, Bridger was left with no other choice but to lead these interlopers on a wild goose chase riding deeper and deeper into Blackfeet country while never even stopping to set a trap. Vanderberg, realizing that he needed to make some sort of profit or Mr. Astor would have his ass, finally stopped following Bridger and went to trapping on the Madison River, where he ended up getting killed by a Blackfeet war party. As for Bridger, Fitzpatrick, and the Rocky Mountain Fur, they set up on the Gallatin River, north or northwest of present-day Bozeman. And as usual, they had their own troubles with the Blackfeet. So much so that old Bridger himself was nearly done for. It all started when some fur trappers found a few Blackfeet in a lake and began firing their rifles all around them to prevent them from leaving the water. Haha, real funny. Only thing was, a shitload more Blackfeet soon arrived and now the tables were turned, causing these trappers to rush back to camp with some not-so-happy warriors on their tail. Now these Blackfeet in question were led by a guy named Eagle's Ribs a member of the elite Buffalo Society who already boasted of eight scalps he had personally taken off the head of unlucky fur trappers. And he made the first move, advancing on Bridger's camp with a small group of warriors, extending a pipe of peace. Jim rode out to meet him, accompanied by an equal number of his own men and a Blackfeet woman who was married to a Mexican free trapper named Loretto. Apparently, the unnamed lady had been taken by the crow at some point before Loretto bought her, and now she traveled with Bridger's brigade as Loretto's wife. She was to act as an interpreter, and as luck would have it, her brother was a member of the opposing war party. As she, Jim, and the others approached Eagle's ribs, Bridger noticed movement coming from the Blackfeet, so he thumbed back the hammer of his rifle. Old Eagle's ribs heard the click and reached out, grabbing the rifle by the barrel. 
A struggle ensued, and for once, Bridger had met his match. Two Blackfeet arrows slammed into his back, allowing Eagle's ribs to pull the rifle free and then smack Bridger upside the head with it. Jim would later claim that he was clubbed with such force that he initially thought his neck was broken. At this point, all hell breaks loose with both sides opening up fire. Bridger's laying in the dirt, two arrows poking out of his back, and more than likely his own men thought he was done for. Hell, he probably thought he was done for. The Blackfeet seized Jim's horse and the woman, but she cried out and her husband Loretto came running, holding their little baby in his arms. At the sight of this, both sides ceased fire. The Blackfeet, admiring Loretto's courage, allowed him to hand the baby over to its mother and then returned safely back to the trapper's camp. The warriors then departed, allowing the mountain men to rush in to Bridger's aid. Now, they were able to pull one of the arrows out of Jim's back without much trouble, but the other one was just too damn deep. They removed the shaft, but the arrowhead would remain lodged in Bridger's back, dangerously close to his spine. All total, nine Blackfeet were said to have been killed during their skirmish, and zero trappers, although Bridger was mighty lucky. His old pal Hugh Glass, however, had run slap out of luck. He would finally be caught out in the open by his foes, the Arikara, and they went ahead and finished off with that Mama Grizzly started all those years before. That was a bloody year out west. Sure, the Blackfeet and the Arikara were always at war with the Americans, or so it seemed, but even certain bands of the Shoshonean Crow had started taking fur trapper scalps. It weren't pretty. And what's more, things were about to get significantly worse for many of the tribes along the upper Missouri River. We'll get to that in just a moment, but one final note on old Eagle's ribs. That same year that he clubbed Bridger, either shortly before or after, he posed for the famed artist George Catlin at Fort Union. The painting that resulted is definitely worth checking out. Just Google Eagle's ribs, Blackfeet, and it's sure to pop up. He's wearing his fancy buffalo horn headdress, long fringed buckskin shirt, and he's holding a spear. And although I tried, I was unable to find out uh, the man's ultimate fate. Jim and his brigade would not attend the rendezvous of 1833. They were just too far behind and needed to make money. So they stayed out trapping all summer and got resupplied in the field with a little mini one-day rendezvous. That winter, they would trap out of the Yampa River area, present-day northwest Colorado, and come spring, they'd head further south to Taos. Gotta think maybe old Kit Carson has some influence on that decision. And oh, by the way, at this point, they were traveling with nobility. That's right, Sir Walter Drummond Stewart, a Scottish adventurer and the son of Sir George Stewart, the 17th Laird of Grand Tully. And I don't know what the hell that means, but it sounds uppity. The Stewart guy appears to have had an obsession with the mountain men, and he came out west to observe them in the flesh. In doing so, he took a shine to Jim Bridger, not only gifting him a prize racehorse by the name of Athaloho, but in due time, even a full suit of knight's armor. Suffice to say, Walter Drummond Stewart was somewhat of a character, but from what I can tell, the mountain men did enjoy his company. Bridger and the men would trap near Taos before heading north again to the headwaters of the Laramie, and finally to the Green River and the Rendezvous of 1834. Now, there would ultimately be like five or six rendezvous held at this same location, between where the towns of Pinedale and Daniel, Wyoming, now stand. And if you've ever seen the TV show Meat Eater, there's an episode where the host Stephen Rinella goes to this exact spot, Trap Beaver. It's on YouTube if you want to check it out, link in the show notes. I thought it was pretty damn cool. Not only is it informative, and not only does Rinella have the same genuine interest in the mountain men as we do, but you also get to see the landscape. You know, the place where these trappers called home for several weeks out of each summer. At least for a few summers. 
It's also where, in 1834, the future of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company would be decided. Former owner William Sublett and his partner Robert Campbell have been busy erecting a string of forts along the upper Missouri to compete with Astor's American Fur when it came to trade with the natives. In response, American Fur, backed by Astor's money, raised the price that they were paying for pelts to even more than they were worth in St. Louis, all in the attempt to force Rocky Mountain Fur out of business. A tactic that worked as Sublett would sell his new forts to American Fur and ultimately give them control of all trading on the upper Missouri. I don't want to get too lost in the weeds here. A lot of stuff going on in the background. A lot of competition, backroom business deals, backstabbing, an extreme markup on supplies, even more extreme than usual. Long story short, William Sublett calls in Rocky Mountain Fur's debts, and the company went out of business, forcing Bridger, Fitzpatrick, and Milt Sublett to then form their own company. The beaver trade probably hit its peak between 1830 and 1832, but then as more and more trappers and traders flocked to the mountains, the beaver population began to dwindle, and by 1833, the price of fur began declining. The fun wasn't over yet, though. That following season, sometime in 1834, possibly at the rendezvous, Jim Bridger would tie the knot for the first time. His bride, real name unknown, but some sources claim she was called Cora, was the daughter of a Salish chief, allegedly. More on Cora and the Salish in a moment, but first a word from this episode's sponsor. Alright, welcome back. The Salish, by the way, were historically and erroneously referred to as the Flathead. Actually, if you want to be technical, they call themselves Skelo. I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but it means the people. The language they speak is Salish. And since I do not think that they enjoy being called the Flathead, I'm pretty sure it's kind of a derogatory term nowadays. And I do try to make a habit to not be an asshole. And because I can't say the word skilo, I will refer to them as Salish. And the present-day Flathead Reservation in Montana, by the way, is home to the Salish, Kootenai, and the Ponderay tribes. That said, there's not a lot of hard facts on Jim's first wife. And it appears that a lot of what we know is passed down from oral stories in the Bridger family. Cora was for sure of the Salish people, uh, we just don't know that her daddy was really a chief. And she would accompany Jim on all of his trapping expeditions and end up bearing him three children. The winter of 1834 and 35, Bridger once more trapped in Blackfeet country, and he lost five of his men while doing so. Per Kit Carson, quote, A trapper could hardly go a mile from camp without being fired upon. Even as Bridger and his men headed to their winter camp on the Snake River, the Blackfeet followed. Still in 18 horses, including Jim's prize, Athaloho. A posse of sorts was formed, consisting of Kit Carson, Joe Meek, and about 10 others. And although they were successful in finding the offending Blackfeet, they were not able to retrieve Jim's horse. It weren't for a lack of trying, though. Three Blackfeet lost their lives, and Carson himself got shot twice. The 1835 rendezvous found the men back at Green River, along with several hundred fur trappers of all shapes and sizes. American, French, Dutch, Mexican, even Portuguese. The Shoshone were in attendance, as were the Nez Perce, Ute, Bannocks, and Salish. Even some Iroquois and Delaware. And this was the rendezvous where Carson got into that duel with the big dumb Frenchman Chunard. Link in the show notes for that episode I did, uh, if you'd like to learn more. Kit versus Goliath. This is also when Jim finally got that damn arrowhead dug out of his back. A missionary was in attendance that year, Marcus Whitman looking to bring salvation to the so-called savages. Just so happened that the good reverend was also a doctor, or at least he was by the standards of 1835, which means that he underwent like 16 weeks worth of training. 
As dubious as that sounds, Whitman was able to extract the arrowhead. Bridger, after taking an ample amount of the anesthetic known as rock gut whiskey, lay flat on his belly as other trappers and natives looked on. Whitman produced a scalpel and a pair of pincers and went to work, noting that the arrowhead had hit a bone and partly worked behind a rib. Needless to say, several men had to hold Bridger down, but witnesses claimed that he made it through the ordeal with just a few groans and grunts. And just like that, he was free of his arrowhead. He would give it to the adventurer Sir Walter Stewart as a gift, and for years it was kept in a castle in Scotland. Come the end of summer, Bridger led the brigade, along with a large contingent of his wife's people, the Salish, to the Tetons where Jim got to show off some of his own doctoring skills. Per usual, they were attacked by the Blackfeet, and one of Jim's men took a ball to the shoulder. Bridger made an incision in the man's back before using a wire to find and then pry the ball out. A cloth-covered pine stick was then ran through the wound to remove any poison that might have been on the ball. Crazy side note, but apparently, according to at least one source, the Blackfeet would catch rattlesnakes and release their venom into a piece of rancid meat. The warriors would then kind of score the lead balls just to rough them up and then roll them all over this infected meat. Whether this is true or whether or not this would even actually work, I don't know. Sounds kind of iffy to me. That said, lead intoxication can be caused by lead balls or other lead projectiles lodged in the human body. I don't doubt that the Blackfeet and other tribes attempted to poison their lead balls. I'm just not sure how effective uh, such efforts were. The brigade then trapped their way across the divide to Stinkin' Springs before turning northwest to Beaverhead Creek to again camp with the Salish. This was around the time that Jim and Cora welcomed their first child, a little girl they'd call Marianne. That winter, they'd camp in present-day southeastern Idaho before heading south to trap the Bear River. Traveling to the 1836 rendezvous in the company of several hundred lodges worth of Shoshone, Bannock, Salish, and Nez Perce. This is the same year that Fitzpatrick got his nickname, Broken Hand, after accidentally shooting himself in the hand while being chased by the Blackfeet. It's a wonder that dude made it out of the mountains alive, man. Just a few years prior, he had been caught alone by some Grovant, who forced him to retreat up a mountain. He fought him off until he had just like one or two balls left for his rifle, and then he hid in a crack in the rocks, just covered it all with brush. That night, the warriors hunting him actually camped nearly right on top of his hiding spot. He was able to slip away, but the entire ordeal was so nerve-wracking that it caused Fitzpatrick's hair to turn white overnight. That 1836 rendezvous also saw the return of the Reverend Marcus Whitman, this time with his wife Narcissa, as well as a few other missionaries, most notably Henry Spaulding and his wife Eliza. All of them looking to tame the heathens. Now it's worth noting that for Jim Bridger and many of these trappers, these were the first white women that they'd seen in a very long time. And for most of the Native Americans in attendance, it was their first time ever seeing white women. Needless to say, the fur trappers and indigenous warriors both made a big showing. All of them prancing their horses and even showing off their scalp collections as they tried to impress these eastern ladies. One has to wonder, though, how the native women felt, especially them married to American fur trappers. That's one point of view that we almost never hear from, the indigenous women, especially out west during this time period. And I think history suffers for it. As far as the missionaries go, I will say I'm not a fan at all. Not because I'm against religion. I just don't like the methods used by these so-called ministers in question. Reverend Spaulding was especially cruel and sadistic after later forming a mission among the Nez Perce. It's just always struck me as a very strange way of spreading a gospel that's supposed to be centered around love and redemption. 
As for Dr. Reverend Marcus Whitman, we will discuss his fate soon enough. That season, Bridger and his men would air quotes discover the very cool parting of the waters at Two Ocean Pass. Now, during this trip, the boys were buggered by the Blackfeet, of course, and old Joe Meek got himself captured by the crow. In turn, Jim Bridger captured a crow warrior named Little Gun and exchanged him for Meek. Following this trade, the crow and the trappers called a truce in order for both groups to better defend against the dreaded Blackfeet. And what happened next is kind of strange. It was mid-February and freezing when hundreds of Blackfeet approached the camp. The trappers scurried to build up a barricade of sorts as Jim handed out somewhere between 150 to 200 rifles to his 80 men so that they could all shoot more than once without having to reload. As these frantic preparations were underway, even more Blackfeet appeared. According to mountain man Osborne Russell, there were over a thousand. Kit Carson claimed 1,500, and Isaac Rose said it was between 1,500 to 1,600 warriors. Whatever the exact count, the trappers were outnumbered by more than 10 to 1, and they knew it. That night, as the temperature further plummeted, Jim and his fellow mountaineers could hear the Blackfeet working themselves up, singing their war songs. In turn, the Delaware and Salish among Bridger's camp painted themselves in preparations for what was to come. And that's when something weird happened. Around 10 p.m. that night, the sky was lit up by Aurora Borealis, northern lights, painting the firmament over the assembling Blackfeet the color of blood. The next morning, a lone Blackfeet warrior got close enough to the trappers to put a ball through one of Jim Bridger's cooks, but that was about all that happened. The Blackfeet did advance, at least a thousand of them, but they stopped outside a rifle range and called out, said that there would be no fight that day. And with that, they turned and left. Uh, All these stories, grain of salt, right? I did check, and apparently the northern lights are sometimes visible, even in southwestern Montana. Was it this natural phenomenon that spooked the Blackfeet? You know, did they view it as sort of a bad omen? Or did they just not like the odds of going against dug-in fur trappers? The brigade trapped their way south and finally headed for the Green River to await another rendezvous and once more have trouble with the indigenous. Seems that a party of Bannocks camped a few miles away stole several horses from some French-Canadian trappers. The Voulivous went and got their horses back and then drove them straight over to Bridger's camp for protection. But before you know it, here comes the Bannocks, pissed off. As the fight broke out, one of the Bannock warriors rushed in at Bridger and got close enough to grab his rifle before being shot to pieces. The trappers rallied and chased the Bannock onto a little island and pretty much killed all of them. At least all the men. The fight ended when a Bannock woman called out saying, quote, You have killed all of our warriors. Do you now want to kill the women? And with that, the trappers stopped firing. It was during that summer's rendezvous that we got a detailed description of Bridger. It read as follows. This was Mr. James Bridger, or Jim Bridger, who was engaged to fill the difficult and hazardous position he now held as a leader of beaver hunting parties for which he was admirably adapted from his wide and thorough acquaintance with the whole mountain regions, from the Russian settlements to the Californias, and every hidden nook and hidden lake and unfrequented stream. His bravery is unquestionable, his horsemanship equally so, and as to his skill with a rifle, it will scarcely be doubted when we mention the fact that he has been known to kill 20 buffalo by the same number of consecutive shots. The physical confirmation of this man was in admirable keeping with his character. Tall, six feet at least, muscular, without an ounce of superfluous flesh to impede its force or exhaust its elasticity. 
He might have served as a model for a sculptor or painter by which to express the perfection of graceful strength and easy activity. His cheekbones were high, his nose hooked, the expression of his eye mild and thoughtful, and that of his face grave, almost to solemnity. One remarkable feature of this man I had almost omitted was his neck, which rivaled the head in size and thickness, and which gave the upper portion of his otherwise well-formed person a somewhat unpleasant appearance. To complete the picture, he was perfectly ignorant of all knowledge in books, not even knowing the letters of the alphabet, but put perfect faith in dreams and omens, and was unutterably scandalized if even the most childish of the superstitions of the Indians were treated with anything like contempt or disrespect, for in all of these he was a firm and devout believer. End quote, and holy shit, did these people love the run-on sentences. <sighs> so yeah, about that neck. Bridger had goiter, which is an irregular growth on the thyroid gland. There are many, many causes for goiter, one of which is just being a female. <laughs> Seriously, per the Mayo Clinic, women are more likely to develop goiter. Also, pregnancy and menopause can cause it as well. None of these apply to Bridger, of course, but the number one cause of goiter throughout the world is a lack of iodine or salt. And if I had to guess, this was probably the case with Jim. Kind of ironic, considering his relationship with the Great Salt Lake. Now, I'm only aware of two photos of Jim Bridger, both taken when he was a much older man. And I personally can't tell there's any deformity or growth on his neck. This description of Bridger is not the only one that mentions the goiter. Hell, his name among various tribes once was the Blanket Chief. As soon as the goiter kicked in, they started calling him Big Throat. I'm not making that up, seriously. So he definitely had it. Uh... Maybe the condition was rectified by the time Bridger sat down for the camera. I don't know. From what I read, it is possible for goiter to go away on its own. But then again, I'm not a reverend doctor like Marcus Whitman. This was also the rendezvous where Sir Walter gifted Bridger that suit of knight's armor. Very curious as to what happened to this armor. I couldn't find the source, but I remember reading years ago that Bridger cashed it away somewhere in the mountains. Or at least I think I remember reading that. Uh, could be in a fiction novel. I honestly don't know. It's just something that's been logged in my brain. If he did cash it away, what a great find that would be. So if you see anything on the news about a hiker or hunter finding a knight's helmet or a chest plate up in the damn Rockies somewhere, you know who left it there. That next winter, Bridger and his brigade would camp out on the Powder River next to a crow village for one of the coldest winters that any of them could remember. They actually had to corral their horses and feed them bark cut from the cottonwood branches. This is around the same time that they heard tell of the smallpox outbreak among the tribes. Turns out a steamboat, they had those now, went up the Missouri with an infected passenger. This patient zero unwittingly infected their Rickera, and then the Mandan, and from there it spread west like wildfire. This was huge, really a defining moment, as over 17,000 Native Americans succumbed to the outbreak. Some estimates double that number, by the way. It wiped out like over 90% of the Mandan population, around 50% of the Arikara, and once it hit the Blackfeet, would kill two-thirds of their population. Never again would the Blackfeet be the formidable force they once were. Not to say that there was no more sporadic violence between them and the trappers. Matter of fact, Bridger and his men would have at least one more fight, if you want to call it that, with this once mighty tribe. The brigade came upon a trail of a Blackfeet camp that they estimated to be about three or four days ahead of them. The following day, they found a lodge with several dead pox-marked bodies inside. 
Looking to avoid trouble, Jim changed course, but in doing so, he damn near had a mutiny on his hands. Relenting, the brigade continued to follow and soon located the village. The fur trappers began preparing to attack, but Bridger refused to allow the men under his command to take part. Of course, he had no authority over the free trappers, and about 15 or so of them went on ahead, creeping in close and opening fire on the surprised inhabitants. According to Kit Carson, who was one of the attackers, quote, We were determined to try our strength to discover who had the best right to the country. We soon reached the village, attacked it, and killed 10 Indians, taking several scalps. Now, the Blackfeet would rally and chase the free trappers back to camp where more shots were exchanged until finally all of the mountain men charged and, as one trapper put it, went barrel to barrel. The Blackfeet broke off the attack and carried away what dead they could to mourn. A lot of mourning going on at this time. The situation was damn near repeated not long after when these same trappers came upon yet another Blackfeet village, a smaller one consisting of just around 15 lodges. The mountain men approached, but were quickly taken back at the sight of several Blackfeet emerging from their teepees, unarmed, skeletal thin, and ravaged by disease. Their chief, Little Robe, flat out told Bridger that they were all dying, and finally the fur trappers extended some mercy. Instead of slaughtering these sick people, they finally called a peace. The next rendezvous of 1838 was on the Popo Aggie, with even more missionaries showing up. Also in attendance was a man named Johann Sutter, who would one day find his way to California and build Sutter's Fort. A decade later, one of his workers would make a discovery that would absolutely change the course of U.S. history, but that's another story for another series. Now at this point, the beaver fur trade is in serious decline, due to both a lack of demand and an economic depression. There was even talk of no more rendezvous. Guess it was no longer financially viable to bring the supply wagons back and forth. Consequently, many a seasoned mountain man was calling it quits, Kit Carson included. Not Jim Bridger, though, not yet. That fall, he led another brigade of men to the Wind River through the Tetons and over to Pierre's Hole before dipping south for the 1839 rendezvous on the Green River. And it was there he discovered that the fur companies would not be hiring out any trapping brigades that fall. Beaver had done petered out due to a myriad of reasons I've already listed, and it was no longer worth it to spend your winters wading into freezing water in dangerous country. And just like that, the now 35-year-old Jim Bridger was out of a job. And I think that's going to do it for this episode. Stay tuned next week as we take a look at Jim's next move, his first return to civilization in 17 years, his growing family, and his feud with the Mormon church. Trust me when I say we're just getting started and there's a lot of good information still to come. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you to all the supporters on Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon. Patreon, by the way, is where you can hear this entire series without waiting, ad-free. So if you don't want to wait till next week, go ahead and click that link in the show notes, homeboy. Also, please contact me with any suggestions, feedback, complaints, corrections, your favorite recipe, whatever. Josh at wildwestextra.com or head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. Till next week, adios.
big old tatas.